start a new series. Um, it's called Titus, A Cretan's Guide to the Grace to Be and Do Good. Uh, that idea of uh, Cretans comes from Crete. The idea, have you heard the word Cretan before? Yeah. It actually comes from this group of people. So uh, it's to be a person of Crete is a Cretan. Uh, so a Cretan's Guide to the Grace to Be and Do Good. So we're going to start this morning, and I want us to think, what does a church need to stand firm? What does a church need to stand firm? The heart of this letter uh, that we're looking at for the next four weeks is this question, how do we establish a church that will continue to stand firm? So we're going to dive into uh, this book, and we're going to be poring over this for the next four weeks, and so I hope you'll get very familiar with Titus, uh, and I wanted to give you a little bit of, uh, little bit of the background to this letter. Uh, so the first thing to note is a little bit of the geography of, uh, of the Middle East. So Jerusalem is across over here, um, uh, across over there, so a, a long way away from the centre of the world, which is over there in Rome. So because the whole of the Mediterranean world is under Roman control, the capital city of that whole empire really is the centre of the world. And the centre of that world is, uh, is Rome. Now for our purposes... Uh, the last time that we see Paul in the book of Acts, you've heard of the book of Acts? The book of Acts is what happens, how the early church gets started. So you've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and they tell the account of Jesus' life. If you've ever wondered how do we get from Jesus to where we are today, the book of Acts is the bridge. It tells us how the early church started and how it spread. And it spread because God is good uh, and under the power of the Holy Spirit, in particular, a man called Paul took the message of Jesus across that Mediterranean world. And so he took it right the way around through modern Turkey and across over to Europe and then down to Greece. Uh, did an extraordinary amount of work and planted churches throughout that whole area. One of the places that we're told at the end of the book of Acts he hasn't been, other than to stop by when he's a prisoner, is the island of Crete. And so if we put Crete on the map there, we probably could have played a uh, geography game and I'd ask you where is Crete, but there it is. Um, it's, uh, it's just down the bottom there. Uh, at the end of the book of Acts, in chapter 28, Paul is in jail. He's been arrested and he's in jail having done all of this missionary sweep. He gets to jail via from Jerusalem where he's arrested and put in chains. They go to Crete and then they leave Crete on their way to Rome where he's going to be tried before Caesar's court. They stop in at Crete and then they keep going, have a shipwreck and a whole lot of exciting adventures. Eventually, he ends up in Rome. From that, we can't imagine that Paul started a church in Crete when he was a prisoner on a ship. Okay, So we assume that by the end of Acts 28, Paul hasn't done any evangelism yet in the island of Crete. However, when we read the details of Titus here, we hear him talking to Titus as someone he's left behind in Crete. He is now in Nicopolis uh, up here, and he says to Titus, hey, Titus, I'd love you to come and join me up here after you're finished down there. What all of that means for us is that we assume that Paul was released from prison at the end of the book of Acts 
and had some more missionary adventures, probably going down to Crete and then further back up here to Nicopolis, as that city isn't mentioned in the book of Acts either. Lots of background. Bear with me. Why does this matter? What it means is we're reading a letter that's written by Paul after he was imprisoned in Rome with an ongoing missionary journey that isn't recorded in the book of Acts. And so we're somewhere between 62 and 65 AD. Okay? Why 65? In about 65 or 67, Paul is eventually executed by Rome, at which point his missionary adventures stop. For obvious reasons. So we're somewhere between after his imprisonment in Rome and before his execution. Uh, So that kind of sets the scene a little bit uh, for how this book fits in. I don't know what you know about the island of Crete. Has anyone been there? Probably in this room, maybe someone has. Anyone been there? No? Okay, fantastic. We're all equally ignorant. I've been looking. It looks like a great place for a holiday, incidentally. Uh, It's a big island. Uh, It's about 260 kilometres long kilometres long. To give you an idea, that's, that's about as far from Sydney to Taree. So it's big, okay? Big island. Uh, at the time of uh, Paul's uh, journey to Crete, the capital city was Gortina, a uh, Roman, Roman town uh, there. The Romans had taken over um, uh, Crete and, and captured it, and they put up their, their uh, capital city there. Uh, To give you an idea of how many people were on Crete, we we think there were probably about 100 cities and about 300,000 people on the island at the time uh, that Paul was alive and that Titus was on the island. That's a few people. That's probably the size of the the population of the whole of the Illawarra or all of Canberra. So a big space, lots of people, and maybe 100,000 people at this capital city there in, in Gortina. It's worth saying it's a city and a place that is full of idolatry. The worship of Zeus and Apollos, uh, Mirus, a a bull god, uh, all sorts of different um, gods are worshipped here. Very idolatrous. And yet, in this island, middle of the ocean, Paul has gone, has preached Jesus, and amazingly, there is a church established there. It's worth referring back to, however, uh, the little statement that we saw there. If you've got uh, Titus open, it'd be great if you can have it open there uh, on page 1200. Uh, So it says here uh, in verses, uh, uh, or verse 12 it is, um, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Nice work, prophet. Uh, How's that for a national reputation? Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds in verse 13, this saying is true. Um, It's an intriguing place. Uh, It was a place of rebellion as well. kind of has stitched into its heart a a place of rebellion. So before the Romans came and conquered it in about 70 BC, 68 BC, uh, it had been a place of piracy. So they actually had pirates going out from this island and basically ransacking all the Mediterranean traffic and getting all their treasure and whatever. Greedy, evil, lazy, this is the national psyche, it seems, of this island, this island of Crete. So uh, pretty good material for forming a church. Does that sound right? Let's have a look uh, as we dive in. The person that uh, has written the letter, if you have a look with me, 
at verse 1 is Paul. Let's, uh, let's have a look again at, at the author of this letter and what we learn about his character and who he is and who he thinks of himself um, in these opening verses. So Paul, it says in verse 1, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, the word here that we've translated as servant, a whole bunch of other places gets translated as slave. What would it sound like if you had a letter written by someone who said, I'm Paul, a slave of God? It's quite nice to be a servant of God, isn't it? In a servant of God, I'm kind of like, uh, I'm a peer who's chosen to kind of help out. Yeah? If you're a slave of God, what's the relationship look like? Well, you're owned, aren't you? You're owned, you're sold into service. It's a far more compelling picture of being totally entrusted to God's service. So a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, apostle, a specially sent one. So a specially sent one is what apostle means. So I'm a slave of God and I'm a sent one of Jesus. I'm set apart for the purpose of taking the good news out into the world. Why, he says, to further the faith of God's elect and, and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So his purpose is to further the faith of the elect. Who are the elect? It's an odd word, isn't it? Not people who are voters on the voting roll, no. The elect are those who are chosen by God in advance. So Paul says, I'm a servant of all those that God has chosen to be part of his church, to advance their knowledge and their, and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And, he says, which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. So Paul says there's a message that brings life. There's a message that brings life. It's been entrusted to me and I'm going to tell it to you. That's the job that I've been bound into slavery for. So Paul, he's a slave, he's an apostle, and he's called by God to take this good news to the whole world. I don't know if you listened to that, that the first reading from Acts 14. Did you hear what happened to Paul when he was doing that? Did everyone receive what he did well? You might have missed it. Did you hear he got stoned? Do you know why people stop stoning someone? Because they think they're dead. That's the reason you stop, stop throwing stones. It says, he announced the good news to them. Then the crowd turned on them. They stoned him. They dragged him out the city, thinking he was dead. The brothers came around, laid hands on him, and prayed for him. He got up, and guess what he did? Went back into the city to preach Jesus. If you're looking for a model of commitment, a slave, an apostle, one sent by God, Paul carries his conviction so incredibly burning bright inside him. And he takes it to the world, including here, uh, to Crete. So we meet Paul. Who's it written to? A bloke called Titus. Uh, Titus, uh, we meet in a, in a number of different places, about six or seven places throughout the New Testament. We meet Titus, and he's alongside Paul. In fact, he's alongside Paul, and we're told that he's a Greek. Now, for you guys, you kind of go, huh? 
whatever. It's like, it's like saying uh, for us, uh, he's an Australian. Well, that, that's all right. Or maybe he's a Queenslander. That might give a little bit more taste to, to, to us. But to be a Greek wasn't such a big deal unless you were a Jew. And if you were a Jew hanging out with a Greek, normally that would have been an absolute no-no. But because Jesus has transformed Paul's heart, as a Jew who's become a Christian, he now says, this Greek, he's my brother if he's trusting in Jesus with me. He's my brother. And so he takes him round with him as he goes to evangelize, as he goes to take the message to the whole world. Paul takes Timothy along and says, you are my son. And he takes him to show the Jews, hey Jews, you don't need to do all this law stuff. This guy here, my Greek friend, he's totally accepted by God through Jesus. Totally accepted. He doesn't need to do any of the Jewish law stuff just because he's trusting in Jesus. So let's have a look at what we learn about Titus here. Uh, In verse 4, we see, To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Saviour. Isn't that beautiful? My true son in the faith. See, in Jesus, there's actually family being birthed. We become brothers and sisters. And in this case, because I assume Paul led him to the faith, he calls him my true son in our common faith. If we have a look at 2.15, we see a little bit more. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. I assume this is because Timothy, uh, sorry, Titus, Timothy and Titus are actually pretty similar. Uh, Titus is a young man who Paul has entrusted with great responsibility. A young man, a Greek man, who Paul has left behind to establish this young church. A true son and a trusted helper. So that's Titus. What about the church that we see in the book of Titus? Well, let's have a look at Titus 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. Now, Paul, it seems, had been on a bit of a a quick visit. Uh, through uh, the island of Crete. Can I just say, we, we've been at this uh, here at uh, Oran Park for three and a half years. Under God, this is the church that God's established. Am I grateful for that? Absolutely. Matthew and I are incredibly grateful for what God's done. Apparently, the Apostle Paul, with Titus' his helper, went through Crete so quickly, establishing churches, plural, that he didn't have time to appoint elders in every town. In every town. What I want you to see here is the incredible grace that God had to call Cretans from idolatry and not following God to establishing multiple churches across the island. Isn't that wonderful? Just an incredible work of God. So the church here is young and just established. It's new and it's needing care. So we've met Paul, we've met Titus, we've met the church. What about the opponents, the people who are being written against in this book? You heard a little bit, as Adrian brought you the reading before, that there are people who are causing grief in the island of Crete, that these brand new baby churches have got issues, there's, there's an attack happening to them. What, what do we learn about these opponents uh, in this first chapter? Well, if you have a look with me at verses 10 to 14... Uh, we can see a little bit about what these people are like. For there are many rebellious people, 
full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. So you can see what's going on. A church has been established in firm trust in Jesus and yet another group of opponents has come in. And not just one or two. Do you see what it said there? It said many rebellious people. Many rebellious people. And when it says there in verse 11, they're disrupting whole households, uh, the word there is they're overturning whole households, hence my trailer on its side, if you're wondering what that image was. These opponents are turning over whole households, turning their back on Jesus in this teaching. what, What are the things that the teaching has in it? Well, it's Jewish teaching. It's trying to take these people who found freedom in Jesus and make them Jews in some sense. And so they talk about circumcision, which you guys, I'm sure, have never heard the the word mentioned so many times. We've just gone through Galatians, if you're new with us, and we heard it a lot there as well. Circumcision is the outward mark of the covenant that the Jews have. Okay, And what they wanted to do was these early Christians, who are Greeks, the Jewish people go, if you really want to be on God's team, you need to have this sign on your body. And if you have this sign on your body, you better do all God's laws as well. And so they wanted to put a yoke of slavery, essentially, on this young church. So we see the teachings about circumcision. Did you see it mentioned there they were eager for dishonest gain at the end of verse 11? Basically, they're in it for the money, these false teachers. They're into myths and they're putting human rules on top of the grace of God. Does this sound like a way to help an early church grow and prosper? Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Sounds terrible. Here's how he describes these teachers, these false teachers. If you have a look with me uh, at uh, verses 15 to 16, you'll see, uh, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now, my picture here is the unfit idea. Uh, but, but when it's saying they're unfit for doing good, it doesn't mean that they have a raised blood pressure or high cholesterol or something. It means that they're not set aside for the purpose that God has for them of doing good. They're not suitable for service to God. And, and why is that? Because they claim, have a look there, verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. Can I stop for a second and think with you? One of the biggest challenges that the world will throw at the Christian church, the first word that will be thrown is that we're a bunch of what? We're a bunch of hypocrites. Why do people hate hypocrisy so much? What is it about hypocrisy that matters so much? Because when you claim to stand for something, but you're completely at odds with it in your life, your words and your actions don't match up, you lack integrity, don't you? 
And when they don't, when they don't line up, any credibility you have goes through the floor, doesn't it? Now here, Paul is saying that these opponents, they claim to know God, so their mouths claim to know God, but their actions deny him. This morning, I want us to think seriously, before we turn our guns on the opponents and go, what a terrible bunch of people, gee, I hope they get... But just to be thinking for a second, how do we go? How do we go with the integrity, the connection between our words and our actions? Are they correlated? Or are they broken? Would we be worthy of this charge? Gee, I hope and pray not. But we should consider, shouldn't we? They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. Lord, save us from that. So what can be done? If this is the nature of this early church, this strong opposition, what can be done? Well, verse 5 spells it out. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The answer, the answer is appoint elders in every town. You need to go about putting order and structure into this beautiful new thing uh, that's bursting forth. I think the next question then is why? Why would you need to put elders in place? Some people would say, actually, the biggest problem the church has today is organisation and hierarchy and structure, isn't it? Get rid of all of that and let's just love Jesus and, you know, hang out at my place. But Paul here is saying, no, no, the answer is to have some order and to appoint elders in every town. Why? Why is that so important? Well, it's important so that they can, have a look with me, uh, in verse 9 we see that the elder who's appointed must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So who are these elders? Not just the elderly, right? Not just the elderly. Find the oldest person you've got in your congregation and give them the title elder and move on. No. Find mature people who are grounded in God's word. Why? Well, firstly, so that they may encourage others by sound doctrine. What's sound doctrine? Right teaching about God. Right teaching about God. So that these elders in place might take their responsibility to say, brothers and sisters, don't do that. Here's what Jesus said. Trust in the message that Paul preached to us. Hold firmly to Jesus that they might encourage. Second, you saw that there that they might refute, refute those who oppose it. What does refute mean? Talk it down. Dismantle it. Take it apart. Show how it's wrong. So the first job is a positive one, which is nice to hear, isn't it? It's not all just negative. Encourage people to keep trusting Jesus. Break apart, break down those who are teaching false things. Then we see a little bit later in verse 11, they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by their teaching. So you need to say, ah, ah, stop. Stop it. Don't teach that here. So the job of the elder is to say, I'm going to take apart this argument I'm going to keep you quiet. Please don't speak any more of these terrible things to our church. So to silence. And then fourthly, uh, in verse 13, we see, 
This saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Rebuke is essentially to, to tell them off. Not just be quiet, you must stop this. An actual rebuke. So the job of the elder is word-based to encourage, refute, silence and rebuke. So this is the reason that they should appoint elders. Well, who would be a likely candidate then? Who should you appoint? Well, the elders, it seems, are to have at least three categories of qualifications. Have a look at me at verse 6. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Wild and disobedient. Uh, the first thing is that they're to have a harmonious family. He's to be in a harmonious family man. So that, that he's to be uh, blameless, faithful, and to have children who are in good order. Um, it, it's worth saying, um, having a bad day with your kids isn't the end of the world. Okay? That, you're, not, you're not ruled out because your kids didn't have enough sleep last night, right? Once. The idea is that if your children are notoriously disobedient... Entrusting you with care of God's household, the family of God, if you can't look after your own family, doesn't work. Don't look for people who are notoriously unfaithful, who are notorious in not being able to look after their kids. In fact, look the opposite way. Find people who are faithful and who have families of good order and good standing. That's that's the first qualification. Uh, The second bit here... Here's a list of things that they're not to do. Since an elder uh, overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. That's a lot of knots, isn't it? If you think through that list, though, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Would we want anyone in any position of authority to be characterised by these things? You don't want them for a boss, do you, at work? You don't even want them for a next-door neighbour, really, do you? So why would we have these characteristics be at the heart of Christian leadership? makes perfect sense. So they're to be blameless, and they're not to be driven by money. Do you see that there? Uh, Not pursuing dishonest gain. If they're in it for the money, rule them out. Do you know it said blameless twice there? I'm not sure if you picked that up. And you might think to yourself, all right, well, so we're clear, no one will be an elder. You with me? Because who on earth can be blameless? Have a listen to this beautiful passage from Colossians where this same word blameless I've I've highlighted here. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and blameless, free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Uh, This morning I want to tell you guys, blamelessness is possible. But not because you're an extraordinary human, but because we have an extraordinary saviour. Are you with me? The person you're looking for who's blameless is one who's been washed and made pure by Jesus. They will then live in accord with that, so, so they'll, live a, they'll live a right life. But you're not looking for the person who's awesome without Jesus, 
but the one who's been washed clean in Jesus and then living a thankful life. Does that make sense? The third qualification uh, is in verse 8 here. Uh, Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. Actions that align with God's heart. I was trying to think of something for hospitality, and uh, when I googled hospitality, it came out, you know, with someone wearing a, a black um, thing with a little apron and holding a tray of drinks. Hospitality industry, you see. Hospitality, though, is a full dishwasher, isn't it, of somebody else's plates. The fact that you're opening your house up. Because if you're able to welcome people into your home, guess what? As you oversee the family of God in a house of his, you will welcome people into that home as well. D- does that make sense? So what what we're looking for in the elder is someone whose actions align with the heart of God. Well, that sounds like a good set of qualifications, doesn't it? Why do we do all that? So that. Well, I'll tell you what. tell you why we want to have good people here at New Life. Our vision at New Life, we say, is that we long to see new life in Jesus come to every home in Oran Park and the growing southwest for their salvation, for the good of the community and the glory of God. We are hoping households, one by one by one by one, find new life in Jesus. That, that's our vision. That's our passion. That's what our church is on about. And I, I, I kind of roughly put those little markers in there, roughly where your houses are, people who live in Oran Park. That's exciting, isn't it? Now, I'm looking for more of those. In fact, our vision says we long to see new life come to about five homes. Is that right? Every home. Thank you, Nathan. Exactly. We long to see every home. Now, why do you want to put elders in place in a brand new church? Why do you want to do that? Well, have a look with me at verse 11. See what it says. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by their teaching, by teaching things that they ought not to teach and that for dishonest gain. Have a look at the screen for a second. Here's the reason you want elders in place so that the vision doesn't work backwards. Because houses being overturned by false teaching wipe off the map the advances that Jesus has made. Why do you want elders in every town? So that they, through the scripture, through encouragement, through rebuke, through silencing, through refuting error, can encourage the saints, you and me, to stand firm in the faith that these new houses for Jesus might stand for eternity. Right belief and right living is what we're looking for. Right belief and right living should lead to a church firmly founded. A church firmly founded. People who believe the right things, whose lives match up with what they say, having leadership like that will provide a firm foundation for a church. So here at New Life, uh, Matt and I uh, have this role of being elders from the word, trying to guide and pastor you. We are joined in the task by our parish council, who we want to have outstanding lives like this as they serve alongside Matthew and I in this task. I'm pleased to say that the elders that we, have, we put in place, the parish council, they are people who match up with this wonderful uh, model here. So all of that's brilliant. We've got it in place. 
I would love you to pray that it may continue to be so, that we would be people who would shepherd you from God's word well, that we would be people of godly character, that we would be people whose actions are aligned with their words and that there might be an awesome decrease in hypocrisy. Why? We want to help your house hold the line. We want to help your house hold the line. I want to help every person here to be a house where new life has come and is firmly established and lasts until Jesus returns. I'm going to pray that it might be so. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter preserved for us through 2,000 years. We thank you, Father, that there was a clear call to establish godly leadership, not just as an end in itself, but that households may stand firm in the faith, established and trusting Jesus. Father, would you be helping everyone here to be people whose actions don't just claim to know God, but show that we do. Father, forgive us where that's not the case. Strengthen us again. Help the leadership here at New Life to encourage, silence, refute and rebuke so that everyone here may be found blameless on the final day. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.